Well, I want to thank you for your singing today. It's a huge encouragement to my heart again uh, to hear you sing and songs of praise to the Lord. Uh, I think especially some of the songs had the theme of the soon return of the Lord. I couldn't help but stop in one of those songs and just, I wanted to just kind of yell out Maranatha, which means our Lord comes. And uh, looking forward to that, can't wait for that. All things would be so much better if we would see Christ soon. And uh, we know he could come at any time. So uh, thank you for seeing those words of truth. And I trust it's been encouragement to you already today too. I invite you to turn to Titus, uh, book of Titus. Uh, one last time here until the next go around in about 30 years. Um, so we've been working our way through the book of Titus, and uh, I've been enjoying the study. I hope you have as well. I've spent uh, now several hundred hours thinking and meditating upon these two pages in my English Bible, and uh, just thinking through their relevance and application for me and for the church. And I, I hope today that uh, as we close this series, we'll not only look at the last four verses, uh, but that the the, the twin theme of uh, grasping sound doctrine and doing good works would be in, ingrained upon our conscience and our memories for quite some time. I've been praying the Holy Spirit would do that for me, so that when I think back to this time and think back of Titus in these verses, I might recommit every time to grasp sound theology and to pursue doing good works that will uh, help others uh, in this world. As we come to the conclusion of the letter of Titus, um, sometimes we can learn a lot about someone by looking at the last thing that he or she, she says. Um, this past week I was listening to a sermon. I don't get to do a lot of that, but this week I was listening to a sermon, and uh, a sermon was being preached by John MacArthur, and he said that one of the things he learned in ministry was that you need to really listen to the last thing that someone tells you. Uh, he said he noticed that especially when people would come into his office with a complaint. And uh, he explained that the way these normally go is people would start with, you know, uh, some level of, you know, small talk at the beginning. There'd be some, some minor issues or whatever. But if he listened closely and intently to the very end of the conversation, he would know what the real heart of the issue is. And uh, from my own limited experience, I think that holds true. Listen to the last things they say, uh, perhaps you're seeing what is really on their heart. Well, the same thing can be true of books, of books. Um, the old adage that we should not judge a book by its cover is likely true. Um, one of my favorite books uh, I've ever read is a book that it looks like it has a paper bag for a, a you know, cover. It looks not interesting at all, but it's so good. Uh, although it's true you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, perhaps judging it by its final words could be a little bit more near the truth. Uh, I wanted to take a moment and show you how some Bible books end in their final words. I think first of what Paul says to the Philippians and. You remember when Paul writes to the Philippians, he's in prison under house arrest in Rome. Uh, he is recalling the gospel all throughout the book. He's reminding them of their close connections, and he rejoices in how much they've loved him and cared for him throughout the book. And he ends this way. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Amazing words by Paul the Apostle to the Philippian church. They summarize a little bit of what's on his heart. You've been so generous and gracious to me. My God will supply everything that you need as you pursue him. I couldn't help but think as well the final words of uh, some of the final words of the book of Hebrews. You know the book of Hebrews is this uh, tremendous book. uh, Words of doctrine and warning five times. The author of Hebrews, whoever he is. uh, Paul the Apostle. I mean, whoever he is. um, you know, he's just putting doctrine and warning together. And at the end of the epistle, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written to you briefly. Okay. Sometimes when preachers preach through Hebrews, we think it's anything but brief. But here the author of Hebrews says, bear with this word of exhortation, my strong encouragement to you, I've written to you briefly. Can't think of, uh, as well, the epistle of James James, a very practical letter of instruction about godly wisdom and its opposite, worldly wisdom, and the dangers of that, the dangers of the tongue being a world of iniquity and a fire that no man can tame. And then he ends this way, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So James ends his practical letter of all these warnings. He, he says, if you get involved in rescuing someone, you, you've saved someone from death. Think of First Peter as well, a book about suffering. There's much about suffering all throughout the book, and Peter ends this way. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Peter knew what it meant to suffer. He said, this is God's true grace. You need to stand in it. And then, of course, if you're looking at the final words of important books of the Bible, I mean, you could go through all the books of the Bible. I've got one more. You've got to end with Revelation, right? The book of Revelation, which is a book about the future of God's people and how Jesus is going to come, how he's going to rescue us, how he's going to deal with the sins of the world and rescue uh, the church and, and how he's going to uh, deliver Israel and Uh, And all these things, it ends in this way. It says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. It's Jesus, surely I'm coming soon. And then he he closes, amen, come Lord Jesus. Powerful closing words in all of these books, which reveal something to the theme of the books and the author's intentions and his strong desires for the people. So, as we look at Titus in the end of this book, we might just see four verses and think, well, he's just wrapping things up and dealing with issues. But I think it will reveal, if we pay close attention, I think it will reveal to us what is at the heart of Paul the Apostle uh, as he ends here. Okay? And so Paul's concluding words to Titus, Titus 3, 12 through 15, involve two things. Uh, final charges. He's going to give two final imperatives to Titus, and one to the church, the churches of Crete. And after those final charges, he will give final greetings. So it's a pretty simple outline today. Final charges and final greetings. The final charges are 12 through 14. Final greetings, verse 15. Uh, And I want to look at these with you. So we start with the final charges that Paul gives to Titus in verses 12 and 13. Look there in your Bible. It says, When I send Artemis... Or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to, set, to speed Zenus, the lawyer, 
and Apollos on their way see that they lack nothing. In these two verses, you can see the imperatives. If you just look, uh, for instance, in the ESV that I just read from, if you look for the words, do your best. He says it twice, do your best, do your best. Uh, In verse 12, do your best to come. And in verse 13, do your best to send or to speed uh, Zenos and Apollos on their way. Okay, and so we just look at each one very quickly here as we are wrapping up the book. First, Titus is to make his way to Paul when either Artemis or Tychicus make his way to them, uh, to him on Crete. Uh, Paul desires for Titus to leave his post on the island of Crete, but he will not leave the churches without reinforcements. He's going to send one of two men, Artemis or Tychicus. Uh, I don't think he knows for sure which one is going to come to relieve Titus. Uh, We don't know anything about Artemis in Scripture. We just know he's uh, somehow a companion of of Paul, must be trustworthy to be uh, entrusted with such a task. But uh, Tychicus we know a little bit more about. He was a frequent traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was given very important tasks by him. Uh, like if you were to read at the end of the book of Ephesians, in the end of the book of Colossians, you'd see that Tychicus was the man who took the letter uh, to those churches. But here, one of these two men is going to replace Titus on the island of Crete. And when that happens, Titus must, I uh, use the word must there, it, it's an imperative, it's a command, Titus must make every effort to come to Paul in Nicopolis. He is to do his best, which speaks of either the effort or the speed at which he is to get there. Do his best to get to Nicopolis. Now, Nicopolis uh, was an important city in western Greece. It's kind of just off of, just separated from body of water from the southern tip of Italy. It's not a city we read about much in the Bible, but Nicopolis is a the name of the city is pretty transparent. It means city of victory. When you uh, hear the, uh, of the tennis shoe company Nike, right? you think of Latin, victory. Okay? This is the city of victory, Nicopolis. Uh, it was set up by uh, Augustus, who camped in this ancient site when he had defeated uh, Mark Anthony in 31 BC. He sets up the city. That's some of the history, but what's important for you to know is that Nicopolis was a very, a city that was known for having a mild tropical climate, okay? It's a city with mild winters, and it's Paul's intention to winter there. It's going to be a good place to winter, and he longs for Titus to meet him there, okay? Now, at this point, I want to just stop and make a brief application here that I think we can make from this text and from other ones like it in the Bible, and that is the value that Paul puts in personal relationships regarding refreshing one's spirit in their walk with the Lord. Paul implores Titus to join him, and I think it will be a source of refreshment for both of them. Now, Paul will soon know what... Paul will soon know... uh, Maybe we should go here. What do you think? Okay, we're good either way. Paul will soon know... Oh, I know what the problem was. Is that any better? Okay. All right. Uh, I had loosened something accidentally. So, 
Um, Paul will soon know what, it, what it's like to be alone in ministry, abandoned by those around him. A little bit later on, when he writes 2 Timothy, near the end of his life, he'll say, bring John Mark because he's profitable for ministry. He'll lament uh, in saying that everyone had abandoned him or left him when he was in prison in various places. But there are other places in the New Testament where we can also learn of Paul's uh, closeness with certain people and how that was encouraging to him. I think of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, there's a man by the name of Onesiphorus. And Paul says this about Onesiphorus. He says, He has often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. Paul had a relationship with Onesiphorus in which Onesiphorus would extend himself and care for him and refresh him and his spirit in apostolic ministry. Uh, For a moment, just turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to show you this in a few other places as we make application to our own lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as Paul is wrapping up this letter, he talks about uh, three visitors who made their way to him. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 17 and 18. He says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. As he reflects upon these three men and them coming to him in Ephesus where he is when he's writing this, he says, they've refreshed my spirit. I'd like you to turn to one other passage on our way back to Titus. Uh, Look at Philippians chapter 2, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. When I think of the refreshment that brothers and sisters can provide to us as we walk the Christian life, I think of Philippians chapter 2. And perhaps you know the, the two examples that Paul gives here. I just want to read these passages to you and show you the close relationship that Paul enjoyed with Timothy and with Epaphroditus. Look at Titus, or Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so too that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will gen- be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth. As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul says Timothy's like a son. He served as a son with a father in the gospel. Look at verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me. Also, uh, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul was so close to Epaphroditus, if he went home to be with the Lord, if he died, he said he would have sorrow upon sorrow. And he speaks of the joy that the Philippians themselves will have when they see him again face to face. Go back to Titus 3, and I'll 
I'll draw all of this first uh, bit uh, to a close here and the application. Titus chapter 3, Paul tells Titus, implores him to come and to join him. I ask you, do you have a brother or sister in Christ who refreshes your soul when you get together? Perhaps at this time, for whatever reason, God intends you are separated from a distance. That's quite some distance. But when you get together, you just encourage one another in the Lord. I'm looking forward to this week. Uh, This week, I'll be traveling uh, to an annual meeting uh, of a group of scholars called the Evangelical Theological Society. It is in uh, Denver, Colorado. I'm not looking forward to the temperature. Uh, I plan on spending all all day, every day, indoors. Uh, I'm sure that when I go there, I'll really be benefited from hearing from scholars all around the world as they consider what the scriptures mean and how to communicate that to people. But for me, I think there's a greater benefit. I love to go to this annual meeting because when I go to this annual meeting, I get to spend time with two or three brothers in Christ that I love dearly. I think of one in particular that, you know, we surrender to ministry around the same time, and every time I get with him, we're reminding each other of the fact that a life of service to the Lord is worth it. We're reminding ourselves of the fact that one day soon we will see Christ. One day soon he will return, and we will be with him. So I can't wait to spend this week with him and to rejoice in that. Do you have a brother or sister like that? You have someone like Paul says to Titus, do your best, urgently, come here, see me, let's spend the winter together on Nicopolis. Would you pray that in our church we would have relationships like that? Couldn't help but think as well of Wesley. We, we showed the, the uh, thing there. Uh, perhaps you don't, you don't know who to extend yourself and who to have this sort of relationship with and this sort of encouragement. Think of someone like Wesley, who's given himself to share the gospel in Pakistan to people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm sure, and he hasn't told me, but I'm sure it can be lonely at times. Would you commit to encourage someone like Wesley to continue on? We, we talk week after week about sending emails to missionaries. I think it would be wonderful if our, if our church sent emails to him to encourage him to continue on, press on. It'll be worth it when we see Christ. Well, we need to move on in our text. Paul gives two challenges to Titus. He says, do your best to come. And then he says, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Look at verse 13 again. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Titus must send forth Zenos and Apollos diligently or zealously. I think uh, it's most likely that these two men are the letter carriers. Okay, they're the ones who will be bringing the letter to Titus, to him. Uh, Zenos, we don't know much about. He's a lawyer. Okay, so lawyers can be good good men. Uh, But Apollos, we know he is uh, a familiar personality in the scripture. Um, We know... Uh, Paul has had a lot of ministry experience with him. I'm glad that this text is here to know that things with Apollos and Paul are, are well. He's still entrusting to him very important tasks of taking this letter. But, but after these men arrive, 
Titus must make every effort to assist them on their future journey, seeing to it that they lack nothing of necessity. Now, helping them on their journey might include supplying them with things like food, clothing, or money to sustain them on their journey. Okay, this is Paul's final charge to Titus. And I want to take a moment again and talk about how this ministry of generous hospitality is a ministry that's not just Titus's in the New Testament. It's a call of every believer in every time period. Okay, and I want to think a little bit about what Titus is supposed to do for these men. He's supposed to generously provide for their needs as they momentarily stop on the island of Crete, and then as they launch out into further ministry. And that's something we're all tasked to do. I think of Romans chapter 12, verse 13, as Paul is giving imperative after imperative. He gives this one very important one. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is Paul in a series of commands to the churches of Rome. He's never been to the churches of Rome, but he, he, he knows enough to tell them to do this. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Or what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 16. He says, do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Okay, and those, it's just a small example of text which call on every believer to demonstrate hospitality, to be willing to support and care for brothers and sisters or ministers of the gospel as they go from place to place. Okay, a moment of application for us here today. I know that one of the founding values or impulses of Colonial Baptist Church was for our desire to see grace, for people to see grace here. Right? Uh, we've heard preaching from Acts several times of Barnabas and when he went to the churches of Antioch and how he saw a, a doctrine, right? He saw grace. Well, demonstrating hospitality to brothers and sisters and ministers uh, of the gospel who are visiting us is a way for us to show grace to others. Titus was to supply Zenos and Apollos with food, clothing, and or money so that they may be able to current, uh, continue their, their current ministry in other places. Perhaps our Thanksgiving mission offering might be a way for you to help those who have given their lives to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a place who's never heard the name of Jesus. As I talk with our missionaries, I would say this year has been a challenging one for our missionaries. It's been challenging in many ways. Spiritually, some are struggling with discouragement. It's been challenging economically. You say, yeah, duh, like we all are. And I know that's true. It's been challenging economically for our missionaries who are facing new costs that they haven't experienced. This is a challenging time for ministers, and I can't help but think, in this, this last charge from Paul to Titus, do your best to speed them on the way that we too might commit. And so I ask you, how could you or your family sacrifice this year so that your capacity to give to missionaries 
who are serving Christ might be better. These are the final charges to Titus. Come to me and send them on their way. It leads to one final word to the churches of Crete. Look at verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Here Paul declares the need for the churches of Crete, and I love how he describes them to Titus, our people. Our people, Titus. Our people must learn something. Again, here's another command. It's a present imperative. The command is learn. Our people must learn to devote themselves to good works. This, of course, is not the first time we've heard this. If you look back at verse 8, you can see this earlier, just a few verses earlier. It says, the saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Same expression here. Here, Paul's not running out of things to say. This is a way for ancient letter writers to emphasize something. When I send you emails and I want something to stick out, I bold and italicize it. Have you picked up on that? If you're reading my emails. Bold and italicize. They couldn't do that. What do they do? They repeat. Devote to good works. Devote to good works. And of course, Paul's desire for them on, on the, the, the believers on Crete couldn't be any clearer. The twofold theme is something we've noted all throughout the letter. And I, I just end by giving you uh, some very brief reminders. Paul's driving purpose in the book calls for the Cretans to, number one, grasp sound doctrine. Let me show you this again in your Bible. Look at chapter 1 and verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. We mu- he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Here, Paul, one of the things Titus is supposed to do as he ministers to the churches all across the island of Crete is he is to set up elders. And these elders must be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Not only are elders to do this, Titus, as long as he's there on the island, he too must teach what accords with sound doctrine. Look at verse 7. Show yourself in all respects, Titus, to be a model of two things. Model of good works, make note of that, we'll be right back to that. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. It cannot be condemned. Titus, in his teaching, could be translated his doctrine, was to show integrity and sound speech that could not be condemned. Also in chapter 2 and verse 10, when, when talking to bond servants or bond slaves, he says this, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's by looking for the word doctrine, or sound doctrine, and different forms of it in Titus, that you can begin to see Paul's main reason for writing the book. He is concerned that these churches would have leaders 
who would give them instruction and sound doctrine, whether elders or Titus. He's concerned that Titus's doctrine, his teaching, would uh, be done in a Christ-like way. He's concerned that bondservants or slaves would live in such a way that their lives would adorn the doctrine that they've been taught, which is part of the twin themes of the book. But it goes a little broader than this. We, we also know that one of the themes he emphasizes is that they must not only grasp sound doctrine, they must do good works. Where good works are used six times in Titus, and I want to show them to you one more time. Titus 1, verse 16. Look there in your Bible. Titus 1, 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. <clears throat> Here the false teachers in the island of Crete that are affecting believers and are damaging whole house churches. He says they are completely unfit to do any good work. And that's the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. Look at chapter 2, verse 7 again. Chapter 2, show yourself, Titus, in all respects, to be a model of good works. Look at chapter 2 and verse 14. When speaking of Jesus, it says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, and then here's his like climactic description of these people, they are zealous for it. Zealous for good works. Chapter 3 and verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. I won't reread verses 8 and 14, but twice here a double call to believers to be devoted or to devote themselves to good works also drives this theme home for us. So as I think of God's vision for the churches on the island of Crete, it's, it's twofold, that they would cultivate a grasp of sound doctrine and they would demonstrate its accompanying fruit. Practical Christian living. Concerning verse 14, I like how one commentator described what Paul's doing in closing here. His name's Robert Mounts. He said this. He said, before his final greeting for the last time, Paul emphasizes that Christianity must be practical. That all Christians must learn that good works, specifically those that provide for people with pressing needs, must be the logical and natural extension of submitting to the salvation and the lordship of Christ. All right, so one last time, in his final words, Paul is driving the churches of Crete toward his main emphasis that they would do good works in response to the gospel of grace. And he helps us in verse 14, look back at verse 14, to know a little bit more, I think, of what, uh, what that entails. Verse 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So at, you want to know what devoting yourself to good works looks like to see if you are doing this. So as to help cases of urgent need. Now, the two words for urgent need in the original... Uh, both mean need or necessity. It's like necessity, necessity. Or need, need. Needy needs. 
It's hard to translate. That's why the ESV says urgent needs. So if you want to know a little bit more of what it looks like to be devoted to good works, are you, am I, devoting ourselves to care for people who are in urgent need? And to think a little bit more in particular about this for our church, are there people in our assembly who are going through very difficult times? And the answer I just tell you is yes. And they have serious needs. I think of one elderly couple, I won't tell you their name, but they're going to need to move soon. And it's going to be very challenging for them. Physically, they're just not able to move stuff. Are you willing to help? Would you look for ways to help an elderly couple who's being told they need to move? I think of a young family in our assembly who's going through very challenging times. Father going through very difficult things medically. And there there are pressing needs. There are urgent needs. Not just monetarily, and I'm, I'm so thankful for how our assembly has jumped in to help this couple and, and how you've helped them monetarily. It's wonderful. I don't even know who all of you are. Okay? The Lord knows. He will reward. But there are other physical needs, challenging needs, in our assembly. Being devoted to good works means that we jump in to help those cases of urgent need. Not just in our church, but in the culture. As we consider Paul's final charge to the church here. Engaging people with pressing needs results then in being fruitful. If you look at the end of verse 14, basically we learn that when the church helps others in pressing needs, they are not unfruitful for God. And all of this leads to the final greetings. You look at verse 15, there's just so much about greetings. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul gives final greetings from everyone who's with him to everyone who loves him. He then picks up his pen, I believe. Uh, Takes it from the amanuensis, or he picks up his pen and he he puts this final greeting that he puts in all of his letters. Right? Grace be with you all. That's how Paul ends, because grace is very important to him. All of those of us in Christ Jesus, we are sinners who deserve God's wrath and judgment and hell. And our only hope is grace. The grace of God, as we've learned in Titus, that appeared in this world at the the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the grace that we will soon experience again at his second coming. As we close this book, it's my prayer that God's richest grace will be upon each one of you my brothers and sisters, that God will use this book to remind you of the pressing need for those who would grasp sound doctrine and be devoted to that, and those who would also be zealously committed to do good works, helping those in urgent need. And might it please God's Spirit to graciously produce these things in us, to produce a sound understanding of theology, and to produce 
zealous good works for the cause of Christ until we see him again. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the privilege of working through these final verses of Titus. I know it's my heart that I will not walk away from these pages in my Bible unchanged. Lord, you know you have taught me much through the 11 sermons we have taken to work through this epistle. I know that I am not uh, then without responsibility to act in ways according to what I've learned. But the same is true for our church today as we close this book. We have done our best to preach it and to proclaim it as in accordance with the way it was originally intended by Paul to Titus and to the churches of Crete. We've done our best to apply it to our lives, Lord, but we pray that the Spirit would, would really take this book and change our church, would change believers. For some in our church who perhaps uh, are all about grasping sound theology and love it and study it, and they're in every equipped class on theology, they take seminary classes to, to better grasp theology, but yet are content to not help those in urgent need, I pray that this book would be challenging to them. I pray that it would show them that sound, a grasp of th- sound theology produces righteous acts in the church of God. Well, perhaps there's some in our church who just aren't as devoted to grasping theology. The sound doctrine. They feel like that's unimportant. They want to do practical things. I, I pray that they would, as well, give themselves to theology. And I pray that you, through your Spirit, would do this in our church so that we'd be different. Lord, I would pray that we would not be content to rest in um, the righteousness of former years, the acts of former years at our church, but may we have a new and compelling desire to for people to see grace here. For people to see that we, we genuinely care for and we, we want to help care for uh, missionaries and those who are involved in Christian ministry. That they would see people who are devoted to help those uh, in, uh, help people who are in urgent need. And Lord, we just would pray that you would not look at our church and see us as being unfruitful. What a condemnation. But Lord, help us to produce fruit as we follow the leading and the prompting of the Spirit of God. We thank you for this time together. And we pray that as we close in song, you might burn Titus and his teaching more into our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.